Uh, we're continue, continuing this morning with uh, our series called Outrageous Love, during which we have so far up to this point talked about who God is, who God loves, the mark of the church, and how to be a neighbor. This morning we're again going to look at a familiar, very familiar passage of Scripture, but with a little bit different uh, angle as we have the last couple of Sunday mornings. However, instead of drilling deep into this passage of Scripture this morning, we're going to go wide instead. And my hope is that we're kind of going to end up doing about a six-month series of messages in about 60 minutes, the next 60 minutes that we have together. Uh, Before we begin, I want to remind you uh, something that was said over the last few weeks that when the scriptures talk about the word love, that most often the Greek word translated love uh, into English uh, doesn't mean what we think of as romantic love or love for sports or love for country or familial love even, or even the love of chocolate and other sweets. Youth bake sale coming up shortly. Instead, when the scriptures talk of the word love, when the word love we see here on the lips of Jesus, uh, we have used these definitions to help us sort of frame that and get our arms around it the last few weeks. Uh, One, unselfishly choosing for another's highest good, that from C.S. Lewis. The seeking of another's positive good at one's own cost or expense, sacrificial love, John Stott. And then pursuing one's neighbor's happiness as much or more than one's own, which would be consistent with with, with what Jesus says, with what Paul says, John Piper. So that's our little uh, framework. Uh, Let's pray one more time, and then we'll dig into the Scriptures. God, help us to be uh, attentive to you, attentive to your Word, attentive to what's going on inside of us as we hear and process and take in, as we feel, as we think. Give us eyes that are wide open, ears that are good to hear, hearts that are fertile soil to receive your word. I pray and ask that as my words are true to your word, that they would be taken to heart. If my words stray or deviate from your word in any, in any way, may they uh, be immediately forgotten. We pray in Christ the Lord. Amen. So reading from the Gospel of Mark, starting at chapter 10, verse 17, listen closely, this is the Word of God. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good, Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not get shall not give false testimony, you shall not defraud, honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all of these I have kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, Jesus said, go sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. At this the man's face fell. He went away sad. Because he had great wealth. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at Jesus' words, but Jesus said again, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. 
It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. And as I read through those familiar words this week, a part of me tensed up at different places. These are important and serious issues. Jesus seems really serious. And what Jesus says seems hard, especially for those of us who possess some of the world's wealth, who are privileged, who are comfortable, who like and who enjoy abundance. What must I do to inherit eternal life? which is probably a question that most of us or all of us have asked in various ways or at various times. What must I do to inherit eternal life? No one is good but God alone, Jesus says. And we know deep down inside about the sin that lurks within, about the thoughts we have about our selfish nature about our me-first bent, even when we manage to behave decently and kindly in public. God may be good, but we know that we are not, at least not consistently, at least not purely, at least not always. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. And knowing that most of us are rich it's even hard to say, by global standards, we wonder if there is hope for us, to which Jesus replies, with man, this is impossible, impossible. But with God, all things are possible. There is hope. But in order to access that hope, in order to be eligible for the kingdom of God or eternal life, do I have to sell everything I have and give the proceeds to the poor. Matthew tells us that this man was young and his gospel. Luke tells us that this man was a ruler of some sort in his gospel. And so he has become known as the rich young ruler. And he has often been characterized by us, by the church, by history in our minds as a know-it-all person as someone who thinks highly of himself and of his goodness, as an unrepentant person, as a hard-hearted person, as someone we would not enjoy being with, as a bad person. And so a person might read into the text, but Jesus loved him anyway. But Jesus loved him despite his sin, because that's what Jesus does toward sinners, with sinners. Jesus loves them reluctantly, despite themselves. But if we take a closer look at the text, at the passage, what is missing here is the word but. And any hint of reluctance on Jesus' part. Jesus is not treating this man as a terrible sinner. Jesus is not treating this man as a proud individual, and so neither should we. In fact, the rich man came to Jesus and got down on his knees before Jesus. 
one whom we might least expect to bow before Jesus, is there on his knees and puts himself above Jesus physically and asks the good teacher a legitimate question. And Jesus does with this man, Mark tells us, exactly what Jesus has done and will do with every person. Jesus looked at him and loved him. Jesus looked at him and loved him. And again, when we say or when we read Jesus looked at him and loved him, we don't mean that Jesus had sweet feelings or emotions toward the man. But rather, he wished him well. He chose good for this man. He was willing to seek out this man's happiness at whatever expense it took, whatever cost. Jesus looked at the man and loved him. Say that with me. Jesus looked at the man and loved him. The rich young man was no better and no worse than any other person Jesus encounters in the Gospels. And Jesus does with him and to him and for him what Jesus does with all people. He loves. Mark doesn't tell us that Jesus tested this man or that Jesus rebuked this man or that Jesus overlooked this man's glaring hypocrisy. No, Jesus simply loved him, which is what Jesus always did in dozens of different ways with dozens, hundreds of different people, giving us examples, showing us the way so that we may follow in his steps. What are the greatest commands, Jesus? Love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as, just as you love yourself, as Jim spoke about. But why didn't anyone teach me? Why didn't the church teach me when I was young all about this? So that I could begin growing, not in religion or in being good by some religious parameters or by looking good, but why didn't the church teach me from a young age the importance of loving my neighbor not just with my emotions or feelings or thoughts, but in action. What does loving others look like? It looks like Jesus. Here's how Jesus loved people. Jesus made time for people. Mark tells us that Jesus was on his way. He was going somewhere, and he had to get there by walking. He didn't have a car. There wasn't Uber. And if you think you're busy, imagine how busy Jesus must have been without an iPhone, without someone keeping a calendar for him, with all of the demands that were on him by thousands of people wanting a piece of him every day. And Jesus makes time for this man. Henry Nouwen once wrote, I used to complain about all of the interruptions to my work. Henry Nouwen taught at Yale and Harvard and Notre Dame. I used to complain about all of the interruptions to my work until I realized that these interruptions were my work. 
The interruptions so often are our opportunities to love people in Jesus' way. Jesus made time for people. Next, Jesus spoke the truth in love to this rich young man. Jesus could have waffled or caved or avoided or denied as people so often do with wealthy people, reluctant to confront them or to speak hard truths particularly to wealthy people, but Jesus spoke the truth, which was the loving thing to do, as we can see. And he did it with love. In love, we have experienced Christians who have embraced the Apostle Paul's encouragement to speak the truth in love. And they have spoken the truth but forgotten the love and instead replaced it with clarity or indignation or righteousness or religion. Speak the truth with love, in love, with the other person's best in mind. And Jesus noticed people. Think of the wee little man named Zacchaeus who was always lost in the crowd, but Jesus saw him. Do we notice the people in the shadows of our lives, the people behind the crowds, the people in the shadows that no one else sees, that the world doesn't care about, that the world has pushed to the perimeter? that the world finds unremarkable, those who are afraid. Jesus had compassion on people. Over and over in the Gospels, we read the Gospel writers telling us, and Jesus had compassion on the people. They were like sheep without a shepherd. Thousands were hungry, and he fed them. I read a story yesterday on uh, one of the internet news sites about what's going on in Venezuela right now, and just I accidentally got into this article a little too far and read about how Venezuela is running out of medicine and how there are no more rubber gloves and no more rubbing alcohol in their hospitals and their surgery centers. And people who used to have access to care are simply dying. Children with cancer no longer can be treated. Their parents just sitting there watching as they wilt away. Jesus had compassion on people. Jesus blessed little children. In that context and at that time in that culture, when they were pushed to the side, and sometimes children are still pushed to the side, I'm really grateful that we still in an old-fashioned sort of way bring the children up front for time with children on Sundays. And I don't know if you heard Gladys encourage you to engage children in the patio afterwards today, but we should be doing that all of the time, blessing them, putting on them the blessing of God, speaking words to them of affirmation. Jesus included in God's love people who were unclean and unacceptable and stigmatized. Jesus included outcasts and pariahs and the sexually promiscuous and moral, favor, moral failures. Jesus included people who were half-breeds. Jesus included people who were foreigners. Pe Jesus included people who were dangerous. Jesus included people who were a threat to one's own well-being. Jesus included people that the world didn't. 
And Jesus listened to people. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote, the first service that one owes to others in the fellowship or in the church or in the congregation in the body of Christ, the first service that one owes to others in the fellowship consists in listening to them. So many people talk too much. So many Christians talk too much. So many pastors talk too much. As if we have really, really, really important things to say, but sometimes the most loving thing we can do is not to say or speak, but to stop and be quiet and shut up and listen. There are thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people who are in counseling and therapy right now, sitting there for their hour-long sessions, paying their fees just so that someone will listen to them attentively. Are you with me? Jesus protected people whom others wanted to stone, to kill, to hurt. He would have come to the aid of women and children being trafficked for sex all over Florida and all over the United States and all over the Bay Area and all over the world. This is what he did. He protected those who could not protect themselves. Jesus wept in the face of suffering. Jesus wept with those who grieved so that the Apostle Paul would later write to the Romans, do you want to know what it looks like to have a renewed mind in Christ? Love must be sincere. Weep with those who weep. And Jesus healed people's bodies, their physical infirmities. He was not only interested in healing people's souls and their relationship with their creators, but also their bodies. Are we interested in seeing people similarly healed? In people having access to medical care, in people's bodies working as best they can. I've been so encouraged by the doctors and the nurses and the medical people in this congregation and others whom I have known in the broader church who have been gifted and who have experience and education in those realms and who have so generously lived out their calling by giving away to others the, the love that God has given to them. Jesus shared God's word with people out of a desire for people to understand and to be infused with eternity into their world, into their lives, giving glimpses of the divine, shaping people's hearts and minds, teaching us how to live and why. And Jesus empowered people. Think about it. He took a handful of uneducated, going-nowhere fishermen and trained them to literally, he said, do greater things than he would ever do. Jesus raised people from the dead. Lazarus, a widow's daughter. A Roman's, Jairus' daughter. Partly for the resurrection witness itself, but partly out of love for their parents, their siblings, their families, their loved ones. Jesus prayed for people. He interceded before his Father on behalf of men and women, his disciples and others. Jesus cast out demons through prayer. And Jesus gave people the benefit of the doubt, which is something I often do not do. Think about Jesus' relationship with Judas. Jesus knows. He at least suspects the path that Judas will eventually take. And yet he allows Judas to stay in the family, in the circle, the, the inner circle as one of his own, 
all the way up until the end. He gives Judas the benefit of the doubt. Do we give people the benefit of the doubt? Peter wrote, the Lord is patient, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. And that's the way God has been with us. I'm grateful that God gives me the benefit of the doubt. And Jesus served people in the most menial of ways, as we know, by washing his disciples' feet. No task was too low for the incarnate God. And Jesus forgave people, including those who even denied him, who denied knowing him. After three years of pouring his life into Peter, of investing in Peter, of giving himself to Peter, Peter says, I don't even know him. I don't know you, Jesus. And when it's all over, Jesus loops him back into the family and into the fold and into the fellowship and forgives and lets the past be the past. And he gives Peter a new start and says, you're loved. I still believe in you. And then Jesus gave his life for others. Jesus died for others, literally giving his life in some sort of cosmic exchange or act of beautiful justice or undeserved redemption, a ransom, a payoff. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God, Paul wrote. And if you or I had been physically present 2,000 years ago when Jesus walked the earth, he would have loved you and he would have loved me in one of these ways, or more than one of these ways, and in other ways as well. Everything that Jesus did was motivated by love for people. In the words of the transformed by grace former Catholic priest Brennan Manning, Jesus has a single relentless stance toward us. He loves us. Jesus has a single relentless stance toward us. He loves us. Soak in that for a minute. Put yourself in the shoes of the many people Jesus encountered, including the rich young ruler. And feel the loving gaze of eternity through the amazing carpenter turned prophet, preacher, evangelist, healer, shepherd, rabbi, incarnation of love. And I may have been too quick at times from too quick to say, to think, to live as if out of that strictly comes a command, part of Jesus' greatest command to love, to love other people. Too quick because I did not spend, have not spent enough time in the reality of the unmerited love of God for me, for us, for you. In Jesus, through Jesus, before asking what must I do to inherit eternal life? What must I do to follow Jesus? Brennan Manning also wrote, and he said so many times, my deepest awareness of myself is that I am deeply loved by Jesus Christ and I have done nothing to earn it or deserve it. My deepest awareness of myself 
is that I am deeply loved by Jesus Christ and I have done nothing to deserve it or earn it. We must first know that, church. And then from that place of knowing and having experienced God's profound grace in Jesus, we can later hear Jesus say, a new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. As I have loved you. We have to know that first. We have to see that first. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. The knowledge and experience of having been loved by God always precedes Jesus' commands. The knowledge and experience of having been loved by God always precedes Jesus' commands. It must. I want you to listen to, uh, closely to something that Alexander Santrak has written. It's going to be a little hard to follow, so it's also going to be up on the screen and read along. We should not preach love to the world as a moral mandate or expression of the deepest emotion or the highest central virtue or fulfillment of all God's commandments or as a sign of belonging to a morally and doctrinally pristine community of faith. Rather, we should teach that the universal presence of God's revelation transforms, shapes, and mightily leads toward the complete image of Christ Jesus. The overwhelming presence of God makes this commandment sweet and desirable, makes it fully livable and completely fulfilled. Rather, we should teach the universal presence of God's revelation as we've seen in the way that Jesus interacted with people, loving people, which transforms, shapes, and mightily leads toward the complete image of Christ Jesus being formed in a person. Jesus commanded his students and his apprentices to love, but only after loving in themselves and showing them how to love others while continuing to love them. And in this, in and as a person lives in this reality, he or she experiences, Santrak says, the presence and the goodness of God in Jesus Christ. And he or she becomes then more and more like their master, their teacher, their mentor, their Lord. Near the end of his long life of knowing and following Jesus, Jesus' disciple John wrote, if anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in that person and that person in God. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God and them. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Live in love, and God will live in you. Whoever lives in the way of love lives in God because God is love. Dallas Willard talks about how we do not drift into obedience. We do not accidentally slip into Christ's likeness. It doesn't happen that way. We don't become more like Jesus by watching TV, even watching church on TV, or by going to church, or even by reading the Bible. 
at least with the degree of certainty with which we will win living with an awareness of God's overwhelming grace for us, we seek to love other people when we do love other people in the way of Jesus, which leads to the title of this morning's sermon, which was not, is not how Jesus loved, past tense, but how Jesus loves, present tense. Because we believe that the resurrected Jesus is still alive and is still loving. And he does that largely in and through his people, the church. Who is God calling you to love? And how is God calling you to love? All of that comes sort of after you knowing, understanding the breadth and depth of God's unimaginable love for you, not because of anything you've done or will do or who you are. But knowing that, who is God calling you to love and how is God calling you to love tangibly, not just in your heart, which is lovely, but how? I know some of you don't like to talk to each other when you come in here. I've gotten that feedback. Don't ask us to talk to each other. Okay, we're going to respect that this morning. But I want you to take out a piece of paper or a bulletin or your phone and, and make some notes for yourself. And first answer, who is God calling me to love? Specifically, names, people. I'm never, you're never going to share this unless you want to. You're never going to be asked to by me. But this week, who is God calling you to love? Someone in your household, someone in your circle of influence, someone you work with, a neighbor, someone from the past. Who and then how? And up on the screen are the ways that we have talked about and the ways that Jesus loved people. Some of the ways that Jesus loved people. And those may be helpful guides for you. But write down the names of at least one person or several people that you know God is calling you to love. And then how God is calling you to love them this week. We're going to take about 90 seconds and do that right now. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you. May the Lord be kind and gracious to you and grant you much peace in Christ the Lord. Amen.